0: who are both saved. And I've got a daughter-in-law and a son-in-law that are great Christians. And I am just truly blessed. I love I love my uh, son-in-law and my daughter-in-law. They're great. But, you know, sometimes that's not always the case. You know, some people that doesn't always work for. And there's a, you know, a guy who uh, basically uh, got involved with this girl and he was, you know... He thought she was the one she's the one I'm going to bring her home to the parents to meet him so she brings he brings her home, and the uh, the mother hates her. she can't stand her It's the worst so he he leaves he breaks up with her he says this can't work I, it doesn't work with uh, with the parents not being involved so he, he finds another girl a little different color hair he thinks. This is the one. This is the girl. I'm going to bring her home. And he brings her home to the parents and the mother hates her. She can't stand her again. It's like, oh my goodness. So he's pretty discouraged at this point. So he goes off and he waits a and he thinks, you know, maybe if I get somebody who's a little more like my mother. Somebody like my mom. And so he gets, a, gets this gal, looks like the mother, Kind of dresses like the mother. Acts like the mother. And she's a lot like the mother. And she thinks, this this is going to work. This is going to work. So he brings her home, and then the father doesn't like her. <laughs> he just... <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> anyway, I, we got to... <laughs> We got a pretty serious message, actually. I should have started off with Joey. That was from, uh, I got that joke from Greg Laurie. He was on the radio last week and I thought, I've got to use that joke. That was a good one. Anyway, today's message is going to be Luke 16, 19 through 31. Um, We'll go ahead and read it together. It goes like this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and in fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip his end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now... He is comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may they may warn them. Let they let they also come into this place, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said. Have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, our text today, they're still in the presence of the Pharisees. From last week, it, it fits right together. They're there, the Pharisees are still grumbling against them. And Jesus uses a parable to expose their wrong thinking and ours. The condition of the rich man and Lazarus says in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. The purple clothing was a sign of a person's social status all through the Bible. In the rabbinic literature, Purple, the Hebrew word used is the transliteration of Greek, is used only for kings and God. In the Roman Empire and later in the Byzantine, purple became exclusively the color of emperors. And proof of this is in the Old Testament. In Esther 8.15, it says there, it says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white and a great gold crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. He was the richest part of society. He was the top 1% in my uh, seminary class. We looked at the demographics of Israel at that time. There was top 1% had all the money. They, had, they didn't have a middle class. There was no middle class. There was an upper class, which was probably the Pharisees and the scribes. And then the majority, 70% of all the people were poor, farmers, and had no money. Okay? So this rich man would have been considered extremely blessed by this society. He would have been considered a righteous man. Because that's how the Jews looked at They looked at him and they thought, well, because he's being blessed, because he's got money, obviously he's in God's blessing. The Pharisees would have thought this too because they were a small percentage of the upper class. But then there's Lazarus, destitute, diseased, an outcast, a thinner. sinner. says in verse 20 and 21, At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. We tend to overlook the fact that Lazarus was unable to move himself. He was laid in that position, carried to this place. And the Greek word for laid actually is kind of violent. He was almost tossed. He was almost cast aside. That's what it actually means. And he would have been happy to eat what fell from the rich man's table, just like the dog's. Remember the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15, 27 says, For even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And immediately dogs are mentioned here. The dogs, in their own brutish way, had pity on Lazarus more than the rich man. They went over and licked him. If you know anybody who has dogs, they know you know that licking is a sign that they love you. They come up, they lick you, that means they... It's, it's a sign of affection, and they even had more pity on him. In the Jewish society, his disease position would have been—he would have been thought to be no doubt a sinner. They would have looked at him and he said he was out of God's blessing. They looked at this guy and said, obviously, this guy's a sinner because look—look look at his status. Well. That's the wrong way of thinking. In Job, um, we look at Job, we look at uh, how they thought. What did they think of, of Job's situation? They looked at Job, and his comforters immediately said, You have obviously sinned. You're hiding something. There's got to be something here. And God came back, and in the end of Job, he tells them, he, he lays it to rest, and he says, You're, you're dead wrong on this. It has nothing to do with it. Even, even Job didn't understand what, what is the situation here. He goes, I I've done nothing. And I love the ending of Job, and he looks, he takes Job, he, he puts the comforters in their place, and then he says to Job, he goes, Brace yourself as a man. He goes, Where were you when I created the stars? Where were you when I created the heavens? In other words, he's telling him I'm sovereign. I'm sovereign over the world. The things that happen are for my purposes, my blessing. And his bad state has nothing to do with whether he sinned or not. Um, So how different are we as Christians sometimes we don't we don't understand why trials come into our lives, problems, and we're waiting for the other shoe to fall off. The minute something happens, we're waiting for what's going to happen next. Um, you know, I know myself. I, I see things happening, and then I start confessing my sins. Oh God, forgive me. What did you count? Know, I forgive me. Last Thursday, did I do this? Did I do that? Well, Jesus is trying to teach them that their position in life or their lack of position isn't necessarily because you're out of God's grace. Maybe, but for a moment, you could be in a tough position. Well, what is a moment? Well, a moment for some people in this life is a lifetime. It is. What did Jesus say to the disciples back in Luke 13, 1-5? There were some present at that very time, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think... They were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's talking about their eternal destiny, eternal suffering, eternal separation from God because of their lack of belief. And it's interesting to note something here. The rich man has no name, but the poor man has a very promising name. His name is Lazarus. Which means, in the Greek, God helps. Both men's fate is the same. It says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. At this juncture, both men's lives intersect but a moment at death. And then immediately their destinies diverge. Who they are and what they believe is revealed in what happens next. Right now, I want to read verses 22 through 23 in their entirety in the ESV. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23, And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham... Far off, and Lazarus at his side. That's the ESV. Verse 23 actually explains verse 22. But I'm going to read the same scripture in the King James Version. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes, and being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Okay? Well, I'm going to seminary now, and when I preach, I really do some studying on the whole thing. There are a whole lot of doctrines built around these verses because of the King James Version. Um, The word to and into in both, both versions, are both translated from one Greek word called "ice," which means to move towards a place. Now, one of the denominations that I spent many years in took this to mean that Lazarus was taken to a holding tank called Abraham's bosom. A sort of purgatory, you might say. Something like the Old Testament place of Sheol, the place of the dead. Well, I'm going to have to disagree at this point with them because the Greek word for bosom is side. He's at his side. So it literally reads, the ESV is a literal translation. He was carried to Abraham's side. Like I said, verse 23 explains verse 22 because in both versions he sees Abraham in the distance. Now, the King James doesn't even make sense. It says, And seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. So he sees Abraham. They're going to have a whole conversation here. But he sees Lazarus in his bosom as though he's in a compartment. It doesn't fit. Um, So, the Greek word translated in and is e-in, and it means at, on, or by. So I'm not going to belabor this point. We may part company on this, but um, you can talk to me after church about this if you have some better ideas for me, okay? So we'll go on. The rich man is forced to look at Lazarus. This is the ironic thing. This is the irony of it is that he had never before looked at him. He was disgusting. He skirted him. He looked away from this man. But now, God has him in hell and He's making him look directly at him for the first time. He has to see him. The word... uh, Let me get back to where I was. Okay, this also makes me think of the way the Pharisees and the scribes would have thought. The scribes and the Pharisees would have thought that he was disgusting too. He was a man that's outcast. He's obviously a sinner. And so they would have avoided him. So this is a lot like the story of the Good Samaritan. What did the, what happened with the Good Samaritan? The, the man is... Beaten up on the side of the road and the priest comes by and he sees him and he skirts him and he goes to the other side of the road. And we we all like to think we're we're the good Samaritan, you know, me. I, I, I would be the good Samaritan, you know, that would be it. Well. A few years ago, quite a few years ago, um, I took my kids to San Francisco. And when I was a kid, my dad had taken me to San Francisco. and I loved it. He took me, it was in the 60s. Can you believe it? I grew up in the 60s. I've got a 12-year-old grandson. And uh, he took me down to Fisherman's Wharf. We rode the trolley cars. We went to Chinatown. It was very clean back in the 60s. Well, San Francisco's not that clean anymore. Right now, I wouldn't even advise anybody to go there. You know, Chinatown, after 9.30 at night, is a dangerous place to be. But I took my kids there in the 90s. And so I, I wanted them to re-experience what my dad and I had done, you know. It would be great. So we flew them over. My son threw up in a bag all the way in the plane. Off to a good start, and I'm like, oh, man, hopefully this is going to go better. Well, it did. We did everything. We got on the trolley cars. We hung on the side of the trolley cars. My son hung on the side of the trolley cars. It was great. Went to Chinatown, did everything that was uh, Great. And as I was walking down the street, back in the early 90s, there was a big disease with a little name called AIDS. And it was the talk of the day. And as I walked down the street, in front of me, dead in my path, there was an emaciated man huddled under a blanket, covered under a blanket. And he, was, he, couldn't, even get, he couldn't lift himself off the ground. And he had a cardboard sign in front of him that says, I'm dying of AIDS. Can you help me? And I immediately ushered my two kids and my wife across the street and skirted him and went down the other side because I was worried about it. Um, A few months later, I was home and I got the flu. And I mean, I got that flu where you're just, you, you live in the bathroom. You just lay there. I laid on the floor. My wife would come in and say, Don't you want to get in the bed? And I said, No. I'm just going to lay here on the floor. I am so, so sick. And she went off to work. And I laid there on the floor for most of the day. And then God laid it on my heart. He said, How do you think that man in San Francisco felt? How do you think he felt? How sick was he? And I, I wept when I thought about it. I, I wanted to go back. Could I have that moment back? Back in the 80s, I had, I had one of those suede leather jackets that were puffy sleeves. It was fully lined. They're not in style now, but they were the, the trend back then. It was a warm, warm jacket. And I was wearing that, and I had a pocket full of money. And I just wish. could I go back there and put that coat around that guy and give him every penny I had in my pocket. I missed the moment. You know? broke me. It changed my view. A lot of Christians at that time were saying, well, it's, you know, they get AIDS because of their homosexual lifestyle. They deserve it. That's, that's their fate. And uh, I don't agree with that. I agree with the fact that you need to help people. You know, everybody thinks their sin is so much more sumptuous than the homosexuals. You know, my sin's a lot, lot more nice. (laughs) Well, it's not. It's sin. Okay. Um, So that that changed my life. Changed a portion of my life. Um. I also, uh, I mean, I, I lost my place again, guys. I'm not, I'm not well-versed in doing this every week, so I, I got off on a tangent there. Um, um, so we, uh, we look here at how there is the consequences of belief and unbelief. Lazarus is in the presence of God, eternally rich man, separated from God. And it says in verse 23, In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. You notice that he says Hades. The Greek word translated Hades is also hell. It's interesting that the King James Version translates this hell. It's kind of of a contradicting principle. But I'll have to say that I have to go with the fact that I believe he was in hell. I believe this is the separation between heaven and hell. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the... That's right. That's right. So at that moment, boom! I believe they were both. One was in hell. One was in heaven. Okay? Okay. So my question to you is, who doesn't he see? Now the rich man looks up, he sees Abraham, he sees Lazarus, but who doesn't he see? He doesn't see God. Because that's one of the consequences for unbelief, guys. He doesn't see God. God, he will never see God. He will never be in the presence of God. He will be eternally separated from God. Unable to see Him. Now, this is kind of, you know, him being forced to look at this whole situation. This is kind of a, an old principle. It's a godly principle. God has a way of showing you your sin. In the 60s, a lot of, a lot of people called it karma. What goes around comes around. But it's actually a biblical principle. Because you've got to look at Jacob. Think of Jacob usurper, heel catcher. He was always devious, doing all kinds of devious things to get what he wanted. But what happened to him? Well, guess who he got to meet later on in life? Laban. Laban. A trickster. A deceiver. And he does the exact same thing to him. So, in essence, what goes around does come around. But it's a, it's a biblical principle. Go on. People who show no mercy, expect mercy. It says in verse 24, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So the rich man calls out to Abraham, the the spiritual father of Israel, expecting to lay claim to his share of Abraham's godliness. But what did John the Baptist warn the Pharisees when he was baptizing them in Luke 3, 8-9? through 9? He says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into... Where? The fire. This totally fits in with the rich man's destiny. He's suffering from the heat of hell's fire. Then classically, the rich man expects to be waited on just like he had his whole life. Not just waited on, but waited on by Lazarus. Hey, you know, Abraham... <laughs> Get, get get, Lazarus, you know, Lazarus. Have him coming. Dip his finger. Still waiting to be served on. The man had not changed any through his entire life. But we know that comfort in this life doesn't guarantee you any comfort in heaven. It goes on and says... But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So Abraham graciously. Calls him child. Which can be translated actually in the Greek, son. So he's actually acknowledging his kinship as a son of Israel. But sadly, not as a son of God. The rich man received his rewards on earth, but now he pays the consequences for unbelief. The consequences are that there is a chasm between heaven and hell, unbelief and belief, righteousness and unrighteousness. And this chasm cannot be crossed over. You know, I've got I had buddies back in my my earlier days and I wasn't a Christian. I was a partier. And they'd always say, Hey, I wanna you know, I want to be with all my buddies in hell, we'll all be partying together, you know? Yeah. Wrong, grasshopper. (laughs) Wrong. You You will not be partying with your buddies in hell. You will be all alone and eternally separated from your Creator. Not a place that I want to be. To me, that's claustrophobic even. Just the idea of just being closed in and no one around well, it goes. Um, the rich man appeals for his lost family now. And it says in verse 27, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that they may warn them, lest they also come to into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. To let them hear them. So the rich man makes an appeal for his unbelieving family, knowing that, that they can't cross over from death to life. Life without unbelief. It's almost accusatory as if they hadn't justly been warned. He's almost, it's almost like, well, we, we hadn't been warned. What will America say when they fall on their knees before a just God? We didn't know! Like I say, we didn't know with the church on every corner. Bible teachers preaching over the radio and the internet. We didn't, we didn't know. Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets. They would have been able to hear Moses and the prophets every Sabbath they were preached in their synagogues. Remember, that the Pharisees are still listening here. They would have been in the synagogues, but for all the wrong reasons. The pomp, looking pious, but with no ears to hear. In Matthew 13, 13 through 15, Jesus explains why he teaches the unbelievers in parables. He says there, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing They do not see. Hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn. And I would heal them. So what is the rich man's response to Abraham? It's an immediate no. No. No, We're not not a church-going family here. We have better things to do on the Sabbath. Verse 30 says, And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone from the dead should ar- someone should rise from the dead. The rich man thinks that a miracle will bring them to their knees to repentance. All of Israel including the Pharisees were already aware of the fact of another Israelite named God helps Lazarus who Jesus had risen from the dead, and they, and they were still unconvinced. Well, in the New International Greek Commentary, it says, Miracles will never convince those whose hearts are morally blind and unrepentant. They will not be persuaded. This is true. We, have you seen so many people, man, if I, it's just a miracle. You know, that would convince me. Well, it won't. It, it takes faith. Faith is Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word. Faith is the thing not seen but hoped for, isn't it? So in conclusion here, we need to ask ourselves a few questions. First, when disaster strikes, does that mean you're out of God's will? Does that, is that it? Is you, are, you, are you done? What's, what's going on in my life? Your child is stillborn. Greg Laurie's son is killed in a car accident. You come down with cancer. That doesn't mean you're outside of God's will. This happens to Everyone. But God uses these things for His glory. He is sovereign over all things. Second, do we comfort those who are down and out? Or do we look at them from afar at their horrible, horrible condition? Thank God that's not me. Wow. Man, I'm glad, glad I'm not in that position. Is the miracle of your salvation displayed to others in the form of charity? Or are you looking for some miracle to confirm your faith? I'll tell you what, when I'm, I'm down in the valley, I spend, a lot of, I, I, spend, I spend a minimum of 60 to $80 giving money to people on those overpasses. I just do. I do. People think, oh, well, they're going to go out and do drugs. They're going to do this. I give money every time. And on one, one occasion I was coming back from seminary, I was turn, I was going down Shea Road North, turned turned right onto Shea. I was going down Scottsdale Road North, I turned right on Shea. Right there was a lady in a wheelchair, and she says, I'm freezing, it was drizzling rain, I need help. And I drove past and I went on down the street. And I'm like oh. and I kept driving, you know, and I'm like, Oh my god. I got all the way to the, the Mayo Clinic. And I u- did a yui, And I came back. I went into that shopping center and I went up to her. Oh, I had, and one of the problems was I, at that moment I only had 10 bucks. And I, you know, you'd you think 10, 20 bucks. Oh, I'm like giving them a lot. You know, give them a dollar. dollar? How, how well do you guys eat on a dollar a day? Not me. What does $20 do? Well, that probably gives them food for two days. That's about what it is. So I only had ten bucks, so I, I came up to her and I gave her the ten bucks and and I said I said it's all I've got. I would give you more if I had it. You know what? How in need she was, and what a good person she was. She looked at me and she goes, "Do you need it?" And I said, "No, no, I don't need it. You take it. These people need your help." So. Maybe you can take that with you today and see uh, see what's what's in your heart. Charity should be in your heart. One the proof is in the pudding. Let's say you know when you're if you've got Christ in your heart. How how do you help others is is a big part of it. We'll, pro, we'll close in prayer. Father, we just uh, thank you for your word. <laughs> thank you for showing us our sinful state and who we really are. And uh, Father, I just pray for each one of us here, you'd change us. Change us for the better. Change us so that what's in our heart would actually come out in what we do. And I just lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen.